Welcome to today's Ascendo Reliability Webinar. We're going to talk about one of the things that we should be doing on a regular basis, which is picking the right tool or task or activity or whatever you want to call it um, to fit in a program or to answer a question or do whatever we do. The idea is, well, I'll get into that. It's, it's not as simple as it would appear at first blush, and I'll, we'll certainly talk about that. Right, now if I can get my slides to go. All right, now one of the things I like about reliability engineering is that it doesn't change very fast. We're still using spanners, as some people call these, or wrenches, that were basically available decades and decades and decades ago. And things like FMEA and, and uh, environmental testing, accelerated testing, uh, uh, reliability block diagrams, and a good number of the other tools that we have available to us, including out of the quality world or the safety world or wherever else. And then we also pull tools in from the various disciplines that we work with, so like material science or failure analysis. It's, I love going into a good failure analysis lab with all their cool gadgets that they have and tools they have. We get to play with a very large toolbox, right? And picking the right set of tools to use for the particular job at hand um, is what this presentation is gonna be about. Now, part of this solution to how do we pick particular tools is, is based on our experience. And hopefully some of the professional development that you get involved with uh, through Ascendo Reliability and these webinar series or this podcast, is one way to enhance your experience. And we learn as we use particular tools what works and doesn't work and so on. And we share that with it, with our peers to a large extent. The idea is, is that it's, yeah, we have a lot of tools and we certainly are not going to use all of them for every uh, task or, or problem we're trying to solve, but we use our experience to narrow it down. And one of the key things to keep in mind is that whatever we're doing, it's it's the results that we get that matter, right? It doesn't matter if you do a beautiful reliability model of a system, and it might be a a very dynamic availability model using Petri net analysis and all kinds of gee whiz wonderful stuff, and automated and and streamlined and dashboard and all the widgets you can put onto it. If nobody actually uses it. It's of little to no value. So keep in mind that the part of what we're trying to do is actually make a difference to influence the decision to improve the ability of our teams and peers to create a reliable product and to, to meet customers' expectations. Uh, using a particular tool just because we can uh, or using a tool that's inappropriate for the problem we're trying to solve is less than useful less than helpful. So part of the process of selecting the tools is to make sure that they're actually important and useful. Now, you've heard me say this before, and you've heard uh, Chris Jackson say it before on the webinars that he does, and I'm sure you've heard it a number of other times from other folks in the reliability world, and possibly in other disciplines, is a lot of what we do is influencing decisions by improving the available information that they have available, right? If I'm gonna make a decision to ship or not ship or start a line or not start a line, one of the questions of many, many questions that, are po that have to be answered before you can really truly have the best available information is, is it reliable? Is it ready to go? Is it prepared to run for the duration? Now, if we don't know that, it's a guess, right? The decision maker is left with this foggy outlook of what's going to happen. Now, they may have a gut feel or they may have an intuition or something like that. Yet, if you could come in and say, yes, this will have 98% reliable over two years or this line will run for the six weeks for this process to run its fruition, with a high probability of success, and here's what's likely to fail, and here's how we're prepared for it, and so on. 
that's a whole lot more information that informs the person making the decision that yes, we're ready to go or no, we're not ready to go. And when you think about it, vast majority of what we do in reliability work is influencing decisions, right? We, we promote derating the process of selecting components that are more robust for the expected stresses they see because that the rating process influences the decisions of the designers as they select components, right? And the procurement organization, when they, they purchase those components, they get the appropriate one so that it, it will perform robustly, more reliably over time. And so we might not actually be doing that decision, but we certainly influence those decisions. And that's a big part of the, why we use the tools that we use uh, as we go forward. Now, I'm going to talk briefly about how not to do it as quickly, as, and hopefully this doesn't um, ring a bell with anybody. But the idea here is that if it does sound familiar, then you really need to pay attention to the latter part of this. And then we'll talk about some of the, the structure of how you go about selecting tools. Um, and then we'll dive into a handful of different examples, and I hope to get a few examples from you. So keep your keyboard uh, handy. Now, one of them is my favorite, or least favorite, I should say. And, and, and I've seen this in a couple of organizations I've walked into, is they take the cover off of, there's a mill standard, I believe it's 785 or 786, something like that, that has reliability plan somewhere in its title. And it basically lists a whole pile of tools. You know, here's FMEA and accelerated testing and environmental testing and stress testing and derating and, and stress strength analysis and modeling and on and on and on and on. It must list 20, 30, 40 things. And in various levels of sophistication, there's a, a oh, I used to call it GEA, GEIA-009, and I think it's changed names and ownership a couple of times, but it's a 009, and again, it's a long list of tools. And I think the automotive industry's got something that lists bazillion tools and, and so on. And those standards are not plans. They are lists of tools. And it says very clearly in, in the preface of, preface of each of those is that the person using it should pick and choose the appropriate tools. But then it doesn't do a whole lot of uh, discussion about, well, how do you go about doing that? Now, I I've walked into a couple of organizations that they've basically taken the cover off that mill standard and put their own coverlet uh, on top of it and said, this is our plan. We're going to do all this stuff. And I said, really? You're making a handheld portable game controller and you're going to do ballistic shock and uh, testing on this thing? You know, you're going to... Uh, make sure that it uh, can survive in the impact of an air airdrop out of a back of a, a cargo plane. Um, you're going to make sure that it operates at 40,000 feet. Um, really? You're going to do all those things? And they're like, no, 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 of course not, of course not. Well, then why are you listing that as your plan? Right? So where does that come from? Yeah, and you know, you, you got a good point. Um, uh, David, on that some organizations really love standards, and yet, I don't know, and I'm sure many of you have heard me talk about standards before, they're a great place to get ideas, to starting point, and so on. But when it comes to actually solving problems and, and providing meaningful information, the standards are pretty lacking. Um, if you want to get a good rundown of, of available tools that are relevant for your industry, there may be an industry standard that lists all kinds of cool stuff. Yet, tread carefully. In the safety world, over the last number of years and decades, they've been promoting using um, parts count prediction numbers from some old database uh, to assuming that everything is a constant hazard rate in order to populate your hazard analysis. Well, that's just plain reckless, right? We know things wear out. We know things have early life failures. We know things don't stay constant, yet we're going to choose to ignore that if you follow the standard. And, and that's just inappropriate is one example. Just because the standard says <clears throat> you have to test it at 
outer space conditions and your product is not going to be used in outer space, are you going to do that just because the standard says so? No, of course not. Well, at least I hope not. But the idea here is, is that it many of the standards, whether it's for how to run a test or how to uh, set up a plan or all those things are ways to learn the lingo, learn about things that you're not familiar with. Maybe this tool is something that would be appropriate here or not, but please don't follow it blindly. I think they're, um, it's, it's a sad place to rely on when you actually need to actually do some thinking other than what the committee has put forward. One of my favorites is, oh, we're making a variation of a product we did before. We're using new materials. We have a new set of buttons. This is actually a true story. Um, we're going to new vendors. Uh, we're trying to cost reduce it and so on. That was kind of the gist of this particular project. And I said, so, and I came in to the project a little bit light. And I said, so do you have a plan in place already? How are you going to uh, you know, evaluate the reliability and provide feedback to the team? And it goes, oh yeah, we'll just do what we did last time. Well, the last time was a brand new project. And so they ran comparisons on all kinds of buttons, which is great, you know, because we're looking at using a new button this time that was actually something they didn't, for supply chain reasons, what wasn't available last time, but it was already considered to be the right choice. But the plan was is to test five or six different technologies again. And, and then do an accelerated life test on all of them to see which one worked. And I says, well, well, is there anything different than the last time you did this? And he goes, no, but we're just following the old plan. We don't want to think it through anymore. You know, we'll just do everything we did last time. And it included environmental testing and drop testing and, and on and on and on and on and on. It had a pretty massive budget for evaluations and verifications type work. And this project was changing two, three things and doing some cost reduction. And yeah, there is an argument to do a lot more than what some people would do when it's just a, a considered, I'm doing air quotes here, a minor change. But at some point, you actually have to think through, do we already know this information? Do we need to rerun this? Is there enough of a change in say the structure holding these buttons that makes it perform differently? We might make a different choice. Now, if we might even be able to simulate that in the CAD programs. So let's think this through before we sort out what we're doing. The other question I ask these guys is like, well, given all the work you did before, how much of that stuff did you actually use or look at? And when I got them to be honest about an answer on that, it was less than half. Because a lot of it was, well, we tested three samples uh, for a couple hundred hours and they passed. We didn't learn anything. Or we did this, we did that. And they tested a lot of things very thinly. And it says, well, were you concerned about the dust ingress being a big problem for this project? No, not really, but we wanted to test it anyway. Okay, why? You know, you could have used those three samples for the drop testing, which you were very concerned about, and you've got a bunch of field failures due to drop drop damage. So let's think this through and focus what we're doing, the tools we're using, on the areas that actually are important for us to learn something. And so we move forward on that. But the, their consistent project planning was just use the last one. And so after five or six or seven generations, what they initially thought through and considered as appropriate set of tools and tasks for this project were for completely different technologies. And so it, it just fell apart after a while. And you may have seen something like that. Let's see, you got another comment here. Yeah, exactly. And when you're thinking through design for reliability, it's you know, it, it, and there's a head, it's, and it's ties, this comment ties right into this, this side is we often just pick our favorites. And I, I don't know if Kirk Gray's on the line, but he loves HALT testing. And HALT has a place in many, many programs. It's a beautiful, wonderful experience. But that program I mentioned before, where it really had a pretty solid overall robust uh, product, they were getting some drop damage. 
And they had previously done the electronics, which they weren't changing at all. They were changing the button that was connected to this thing, but they weren't changing the electronics at all. But they wanted to run Halt on the circuit boards isolated. And I said, why? Halt doesn't, it's not gonna tell us anything new, right? You might find something out and it might be useful, but if you've got the budget and time and energy to go do that, that's great. But on the other hand, how about we focus in on this drop testing and the damage that we're getting there and do some failure analysis instead, because we already have the failures. We don't understand it exactly. Let's spend our energy solving the problems that we already know about, which are major problems given the why we're redesigning this thing and move forward. Now, if there becomes a technology or an element or piece of this that is a lot of unknowns, we don't know how it's gonna perform or fail, well, HALT might be the right tool. But just to always do HALT is, is turning off your brain. It's always doing FMEA. I picked these two because they're very, very common tools, right? We use them lots and lots of circumstances and they're often called for. But if you really don't need to do it, if there's gonna be really no or little value gained by doing it, then let's focus on the things that have a higher return, things that are actually gonna help influence decisions, right? Um, so there's circumstances when these two tools are, are not the appropriate. Not always, right? There's lots of cases where they are, but it guards yourself. You don't always need to do a accelerated life test on everything or anything. You don't always need to do dust testing. If your product is gonna be used in an area where there's no dust, what's the point? And so on, you gotta think through these things. Now, one, I ran into one engineer that loved doing failure analysis. And that was almost the entire plan, is we get a failure, I'm gonna do failure analysis. That's my plan. And they had a really nice lab. They could really do a lot of failure analysis and they were really good at it. And it added a lot of usefulness. It, they preferred doing failure analysis than doing preventative stuff like derating or stress strength analysis or any of the other design for reliability things. Like even participating in a design review, unless it was gonna talk about a failure analysis, they weren't interested. And so, yeah, sometimes we think everything looks like a nail and so we always use the same hammer. Well, sometimes we need a screwdriver uh, or some other particular tool. There's something to be cautious about. Now, uh, let me pause here and, and ask you to jump on the questions, Ted. So you've heard me outline kind of a couple of ways not to do it and a few comments about what we should do instead. But what do you think? What is part of setting, sitting down and picking out what tools or tasks that we should do? How do you pick a tool? What do you, excuse me, what do you consider kind of in a grand scheme of things? Um, what, what should you pull together? Okay, yeah, perfect. I think that's actually my first slide is to find the problem, um, I'm pretty sure. Uh, what else, what else should we consider? You know, what are we trying to do that's to find the problem? That's a, a pretty good idea there. Gives me a chance to get a sip of water. Excellent, Mark. This is like, um, you know, um, I don't know what the game show is where that's, you know, they do a survey and then what's the answer kind of thing. Capability is exactly on it, right? What are, what's the experience? Do they even know what an FMEA is or HALT test or, or accelerated life test or any of those kind of things? A goal? Yeah, what are, I think that ties into defining the problem. What are we trying to do? Um, all right, good. Couple of good answers there. Let's see, you got two of the three, um, but you could also argue constraints as part of capabilities. I think you got them all there. Um, the situation is really, you know, what are we trying to do, right? And I've told this story many times. The very first time I got involved with reliability that looking back on it was kind of the start of my career is my Director of engineering came in and said, hey, we need you to figure out how long this product will last. Will it survive for 20 years? And if so, how many, how many will survive that long? And so my initial smart alecky kind of 
response was, great, I get to go to Northern Italy where this product's going to be installed and watch it for 20 years. I could do that. Um, and he goes, no, 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 we need an answer in six months. They're not gonna buy it and install it unless they know it's gonna work. And so you, they need to do that in six months. That's the idea. And so you've got a little less than six months to figure out how to provide information to the customer and to us to give us some status, some idea of what's the probability of it surviving for 20 years. Oh, okay. So you need it by Thursday, you know, some Thursday in the future. And the other questions I learned to ask pretty quickly was, well, how well do you need to know this answer? Do you want just an engineering guess or do you want a rough, the whole system, all the connectors and all the circuitry and everything else, or just this part that's new? And he said, just this part, this one heating cable element of it. Okay, good. Now I know I'm on the right track. I'm gonna answer the question such that you get the information you need and I've got a deadline. Okay, not that I really like deadlines. Um, it turned out I, I got a, enough samples to, to run a pretty sophisticated uh, degradation analysis uh, or based uh, accelerated test and did some uh, the got the support to do the mathematics and and the modeling and came up with a pretty reasonable answer for him and they ended up the customer went through the report and liked it and bought the product and as far as I know they're still there in these bridges in northern Italy that uh, um, I don't know if anybody's from Italy if you know that the bridges in Northern in the, uh, um, oh, I'm drawing a blank on the, it's a part of the Alps, I believe, but it's called something else in Northern Italy. Anyway, the uh, bridges in the mountains have sensors and these heating cables so that they melt the ice and snow off the bridges. So instead of having a sign saying, hey, bridges are gonna be slippery, they, deal with that problem by just making sure the bridges are dry and so it and not iced over so that was the basic part of you know define the problem what is it i'm trying to solve if for example i have a situation that is we have competing groups looking for resources and they all think their problem is the most significant well i would hope an fmea comes to mind. Let's put them in the room and look at this at a system level and sort out where the resources should go to have the most effect. That would be a, an appropriate way to help answer that question. Um, and so on. What is the problem that we're trying to solve? And that often then suggests a couple of tools that would be appropriate to help answer that issue or that question. Um, you know, is it ready to ship? We know that question's coming up. Is it ready to, to start the production line? Those kinds of questions we can anticipate. Well, how are we going to position ourselves so that we can answer that question? And then break it down. What are the other questions that are along that way? Do we have the appropriate number of spare parts? Do we have the appropriate training? Do we have uh, a good idea of how it would fail so that we could actually do testing? and evaluate how long before those failures occur. So part of the situation is we're gonna to have to use our own imagination and being familiar with the product development process or line commissioning process to understand what are those significant questions that need to be answered and how are we going to break that down to get information available to them. On the other side is, well, how big of a problem is this? I think the, the notion of well, what's the goal, right? If we're within a 10th of a percent of our goal and we have a, a different issue that says that we have a 30% scrap rate. Well, there's a lot of money going into the dumpster and there's not a lot of room to actually achieve our reliability goal. We're almost there and it's well within our margin of error of just our ability to collect information. So sometimes the situation is, are we working on the right problem, right? Are, it, should we focus on reducing the scrap uh, in improving the reliability of our assembly process and vendor selection and material allocation and so on. That might be a way better use of our time to solve a more pressing problem, more important problem. So those are parts of that. Now constraints, remember I, my first question and my first task was, you know, great, I get 20, I get 20 years in the uh, 
um, oh, it's on the tip of my tongue, the name of that mountain range. But anyway, um, is no, we needed it in six months. Now, I didn't have the expertise to do this, yet my director was very willing for me to go to the library, go find some experts. Um, I didn't end up hiring a consultant, but I did meet uh, Wayne Nelson at a conference. And we sat down over lunch and talked about how do I approach this? I actually bought a copy of his book before I went, so I was looking for him at this conference. And I already knew we had uh, chambers and, and so I could run temperature-based uh, acceleration, but I, I didn't have the modeling tools to do a nonlinear regression analysis. And this was quite a while ago. And so we were able to purchase a, 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 a package that allowed us to do nonlinear regression analysis to a reasonable degree and took some classes meanwhile uh, that ended up leading to me actually getting a master's degree eventually. But it, it I had the support, I had the back, the training, I had the encouragement to go learn what I didn't know. I had a lot of assets already available. And I even had a technician that helped me prepare all the samples and monitor the testing and do all that kind of good stuff. So sometimes it's constraints are no samples. And we, you know, that just happens, or we don't have enough time, or we don't understand the process and so on. So one of the things to take away when you frame a problem is a really perfect answer a day late from when that decision's gonna be made is worthless, right? It, it's, it's not adding value. If they have to make the decision without your information, it's not helping. So we have to give up sometimes on the due diligence and expertise and depth of detail and all those kinds of things to meet the requirements that are imposed. Now, I always am very cautious when I have to do that as to what exactly am I giving up, right? I might be giving up confidence in my sample representing the population, or I, but I clearly state those limitations and, and assumptions. Yeah, lack of data. That would be a good one. Thanks for that one, Sub. Um, definitely. Sometimes we're blind. Um, the constraints are we need to make it better, but we don't know what's failing. Well, you know, what would be a good way to approach that if we just don't have the data, right? Or it might be available someplace. Let's go find it. Let's go poke our noses around in different databases and different groups around the organization. Uh, sometimes it's just ringing up a bunch of sales folks that actually talk to customers or field technicians that actually spend time with customers with their products to understand, well, what's the pain points? What's pro what are the problems? What are the issues that they're facing? We might not have great field data, but we may be able to get to that information. And so, yes, uh, uh, lack of info. And, you know, it's been more than once that I just didn't have enough information. So I went and sat on the line with a notepad and a stopwatch or whatever it was I had available to collect information and just tracked it and got information. It wasn't perfect. It wasn't great. It wasn't automated. And it wasn't any high zoots or anything. It cost me about four hours. Excuse me. But I had some data then. I could I could start to form an hypothesis and and evaluate it, compare it, and sometimes it takes that. You got to go get what you need, and or be very clear about how this constraints limits the um, informative the value of your information of your results. All right, and then. One of you mentioned the capabilities, right? I've run into organizations that love doing design of experiments. They were good at it. They ran design of experiments just on just about all kind, anything you can think of. Um, if there was a series of design options and they were comparing different vendors or they were looking for uh, an assembly line optimization or they were exploring what were the factors that in influence the performance of a particular product. They ran design of experiments, but they didn't know what a Weibull plot was, right? They could do pretty sophisticated 
analysis of variance analysis, they were good at it. And they were good at designing those experiments to give them information. But when I took a bunch of field data and put it on a Weibull plot, they were confused. Now that's a simple example, and there's many other ones. Yeah, and ex exactly. Another one is just, do you know how to use this tool, right? Many designers, especially mechanical engineers, use a CAD system, computer-aided design system, a drawing tool, essentially. And they, they can be wizards with those things and really, really good at it. Many of those tools include finite element analysis as a, as a feature or a function of that tool. So they can add, simulate vibration or loads and so on and, and look where the weakness, weak points are or where um, stress points are. And they can use that information to uh, improve their design. Um, I once saw this same group that did great design of experiments um, went off and was using an airflow, a computational fluid dynamics um, simulation tool to look at airflow in order to minimize the sound generated by the airflow going through the system. And they were able to very quickly using the simulation tool and in a design of an experiments approach, try a number of different variables simultaneously. And so in an afternoon without building any protos, uh, was able to come into a pretty elegant design, which then they built and tested and it was pretty solid. It was well within their, their desired um, sound level that it was making and the type of sound. It was pretty, pretty fancy. Yet when, I walk over to talk to their people dealing with field failures. Um, their standard answer was just send it back to the vendor. If we have a bearing fail, send it to the vendor. I says, well, why is the bearing fail? And I just introduced them to the idea of a five whys. Well, why is the bearing failing? He says, well, it's getting wet. Well, where is it getting wet? Well, the seal over here is failing, right? So how is a bearing vendor going to solve your seal problem? Right? They're going to say the bearing got wet and it rusted, it corroded, or you know, contaminated the, the lubricant. How is that at all going to help? Well, that's the part that failed, and that's our policy. We send it to the vendor. Oh, please don't do that. You know, just start with the basic root cause, you know, five whys. What's going on here? Are we solving the appropriate problem? But then build on that, right? Eventually, we got that team so they could do cross-sectioning. They did some chemical analysis. They had a, a blanket PO with the local failure analysis laboratory. And they were getting more and more sophisticated at understanding what problem they were actually trying to solve with the root cause analysis. But it's start where you are and build on it, right? And take one step at a time and continue to improve it. All right. So what is a good source of failure? What's what's one example of where failures come from when we launch a product? And it's kind of where I'm heading in particular. What's the types of ways that it can happen? And, and not particular mechanisms. What's kind of general categories of areas we need to focus on and apply our various tool sets? Let's see, misuse, yeah, see that? In-service failure, warranty data, well, that's where we can find the data. Yeah, the environment. Yep, yeah. good one, Golnas. Good to see you here. Yeah, let me pass these through. I, I really do miss the chat window we used to have. Made it a whole lot easier to do this. This just takes a second and I'll share all this stuff. So a couple are touching on ones I'm interested in. How about design, right? The environment, if we don't understand the environment, it's hard to design it appropriately. Installation is good. Yeah, that's a good one. I'm saying good because I have stuff coming up on that particular topic uh, caused by maintenance. Yeah, sometimes maintenance fixes one problem and causes another one, sad as it is to say, that can happen. Sometimes it's the design makes it very difficult to affect a good repair. I think all of you have heard of design for manufacturing and design for repair and design for reliability and design for you name it. Yeah, good, good list, thanks. So let's see, here's where I started with this. And you've all heard me say this before over and over again, reliability happens in the design. 
It doesn't happen in the test laboratory. It doesn't happen in the failure analysis lab. It doesn't happen in the reliability modeling that we do. It doesn't happen with failure data analysis. And it doesn't matter how good our viable plot is. If the design is bad, you're gonna get a bad product. There's nothing we can do about that. We need to fix the design. So one of the issues that I run into is that there's a time to market focus, right? I asked one uh, program manager, what was important for them? Uh, time to market, uh, cost, a, um, uh, uh, functionality, you know, does it need to do what it's supposed to do? Or reliability. I gave her four choices and said, you know, how do you prioritize these? And, and she said, time to market, time to market, time to market. None of the other ones matter. And I said, really? You delayed your program last month uh, by a week. Why did you do that? Oh, it wasn't reliable enough. All right. Well, reliability then matters. All right. Now, here's the issue. If you focus, if you have a team that is just laser focused on time to market, for example, and you could substitute in cost or functionality or whatever focus is on their mind and their number one priority and they always talk about it. If it just doesn't work, we're not gonna use it. If it just doesn't have the features that customers really want to buy, we can't put it on the market, right? It doesn't matter if it's on time, if it doesn't do what it's supposed to do, it's, what's the point, right? If I make a drill press and put it on the market and I get it there on time, but it has no truck, no way to attach a drill bit, well, what's the point? I got this beautiful motor that spins this spindle around and around, but I can't use it to drill. So yeah, we made our time to market. So there's always a balance. The hard part when you're talking about reliability work is that we say, oh, I, time to market's important. I understand that. Here we have an issue with this piece and it's gonna go maybe a half percent overall field failure rate and it's relatively small compared to the overall failure rate we are accepting into this particular product. And I wanna do a six month or a year long study of that particular failure mechanism. Well, that probably just won't fly. Right? If it's not within the time to market window and actually will re give you a return, that's just not gonna happen. So the tools I would typically use would be things like halt testing or design for reliability tools like derating and stress strength analysis and simulations and physics of failure type work early in the program in order to identify weaknesses and and influence the early design decisions so that we get a more robust product as we move through the process, which then can tie directly to reducing the risk of missing the time to market, right? If I'm building a brand new platform, brand new technology, all this cool stuff, and, and we just don't know how it's gonna work, well, then I need some more time. Right? I'm going to need the failure analysis. I'm going to need the optimization work. I'm going to need to uh, um, really clean up the assembly process so that it's smooth and consistent long before we're ready to go to the market. Right? So picking the tools oftentimes has to balance with what's the priority of the organization. Right? Sometimes, though, that's a challenge. Right? I ran into one program manager that always wanted all of the tests that we ran to pass because failures were bad. Failures meant our product wasn't ready. So I had to step back and say, all right, if you only want to put pass tests on your data sheet, that's fine. Run the test to the standard, run the test to whatever, don't run enough samples, don't run them long enough, do whatever, yet you don't learn anything. Right? The value of spending all this money and resources and heating chambers, for example, is so that we get feedback to your design team that allows them to make improvements. And if we, if we don't find those problems, our customers certainly will. Right? Here's the history. Here's your last three launches, and you spent half your design team time, instead of designing the next product, fixing the last one. 
because your customers found those issues, even though all of your tests passed. So let's think this through a little bit. Would you like half of your engineering team back sooner so that they don't have to fix previous problems? Oh yeah, that would be great. All right, well, let's test the failure. Let's go find failures and allow you and your engineering team to solve them before you launch the product. And, and then there were other hurdles to, to deal with in that, yet eventually they saw that and understood it. So picking the tools to such that I moved them from being totally reactionary to being proactive enough that they saw the benefit and then they doubled down on it, right? Once they got a couple of their engineers back, they didn't get quite as many field failures. The customer satisfaction went up, the, the revenue went up, the cost of failures, overall cost of say warranty went down. And, but more importantly for that particular in, uh, engineering manager was they got their engineers focused on the next project sooner more of them on it sooner. And that was a value to them. So selecting tools that allowed them to be proactive and solve the problems before they occurred and to identify issues and problems like using HALT tests and FMEAs early in the program got them to shift away from being so reactive. And, and so it was tied to what was important to them. Them it was engineering staffing, essentially. All right, got a couple of comments here. Um, yeah, operator knowledge, uh, technician knowledge, and customer knowledge, you know, how, how we're going to do that. Uh, maintenance effects on reliability. Yeah, good one. And reliability is remaining useful life. ANN, I'm not sure what ANN is. Uh, Pretty, you can help me with that one. So remaining useful life, we're looking at the rate of arrivals of failures on a repairable equipment. I mean, those are, are informative tools and balances. They can trigger actions, they can inform decisions of when to retire a piece of equipment, how many spares they have and so on. Um, how often, how to adjust our, our preventative maintenance. Those things are excellent tools for doing that, yet, just collecting those information, just doing the analysis. And as I saw in one factory, they, they said, oh, we do SPC, statistical process control for our quality of our systems. And it was posted in the guest lobby behind glass and it was updated once a month. And on the line, there was no evidence of any of this going on. So it was automatic, automatically collected once a month. The quality engineer in the organization printed out a bunch of control charts and put it in the guest lobby. And so were they really doing that tool for any particular purpose that it was intended to do? Were they solving any problems that were actually meaningful? No, not really. But customers asked for SPC, so they gave it to them. Which brings me up to feedback, right? It's SPC is a great tool for looking at your production line and improving and even in your supply chain is looking for opportunities to make improvement. Now, doing SPC, but not actually making improvements is a kind of a waste of time. Well, it's not kind of, it is a waste of time. Some of the feedback I've gotten on promoting various tools like FMEAs was, oh, you, we just get together and trash some guy's design and he feels bad about it and then he never wants to do that again. Well, yeah, we're gonna, say this, you know, your baby's ugly. There's no doubt about it. You created this beautiful design. You're gonna tell us all about it. We're gonna tell you how it's gonna fail in all the ways that it's gonna fail and tell you all kinds of cool stuff that you really don't wanna know, but you really need to know in order to know what to go fix, where to go focus, where to get more information. And so if the problem is we have competing competition for resources, we are, fixing problems, but the overall system's not getting improved. Um, we need to focus on where do we need to focus, right? And FMEA is a great tool for doing that. So the idea is, is that do we need to provide um, information back to the team so they can adjust? So failure analysis is a great tool for doing that, right? We get a prototype failure, we don't know exactly how it failed. Let's say these bearings were rusty. 
well, what exactly is causing this? Let's do the five whys and do some basic failure analysis. Um, I got a circuit board once that had white powder on it, right? Looking at it, I couldn't tell you what it was. It was kind of crystalline, but white, and it wasn't obviously conductive, but it obviously did cause a short. Um, how did this happen? What's going on here? And so a simple chemical analysis gave us a clue as to what the components of that white powder was, where that uh, chain of events, what was the starting uh, chemicals that caused this phenomena? And we found that it was board handling. People were touching parts of circuit boards where they really shouldn't be touching it with bare hands. And the oils on your hand can cause corrosion to start and cause a short circuit to occur. But just looking at powder on, on a board doesn't really help us a lot until we know whether it was introduced as contamination from the outside entity or was it uh, from hands, you know, chemicals that are found on, on human hands very easily. Um, one of the easiest ones is we looked at a board and it had the thumbprint. You could see the thumbprint right, right where the corrosion started. That one was pretty obvious, but sometimes they're not. If something's failing and it's got a weird color to it, it's a different chemical reaction occurring, well, then we need a chemist to find this information and let's go do that. Now, some of the feedback, it, one of my, I don't know, early on mantras around this kind of stuff is that if I set a goal for a program, right? We went 98% the last two years in North America, handheld outdoor environments, and it's used like a phone, right? We can set a goal and that's great. Everybody knows the goal. Nobody does anything about it. And I've actually had one manager says, oh yeah, we don't pay attention to the goal because we don't measure anything that tells us if we're anywhere close to it or not. So we set it, we feel good, and then we ignore it. Vice versa, if you do a whole slew of testing, right? You do tons and tons of evaluation and life testing and data analysis and everything else, but you don't have a goal to compare it to, you're gonna have endless arguing, is it good enough or not? Yeah. Um, and so there's a zillion different little variations of this. Some, some tools like setting a goal is great, right sets a target for the organization but if we don't actually provide feedback along the way that we're making progress to actually achieving it or where do we need to focus on to actually make the improvement um, it's of little to no value now doing testing likewise without having something to compare it to um, just because i put 75 samples in a chamber at 85c for a thousand hours and they all passed well what does that mean is that good enough? Is that bad enough? Is that relevant? You know, what was, what am I comparing that test to? And if I don't have a goal, I really don't know, right? Uh, if I had three failures, okay, is that bad? Is that good? We could, we get failures. Now we can go do failure analysis and go figure about it, figure it out. But how, what's, so part of this process of getting feedback is it's got to match something, right? But it also has to add value. It has to be solving a particular problem, whether it's FMEA or failure analysis or testing or whatever, or even modeling and analysis. It really needs to focus on what's the issue that I'm trying to solve, that early on topic. Um, Question from Pradeep is on, could FMEA scores be altered, right? Was they should be altered, right? The idea of an FMEA is you get a, a ranked order, essentially of high severity, high occurrence, low detectability type stuff. And as you make improvements, you change those scores to reflect a new reality. And then you move on to the next groups and so on. The information, the feedback that we're gaining is a way to improve those scores or to change those scores and adjust it as it goes. You probably have heard it many times that FMEAs are supposed to be living documents, not a one time and put it on the shelf. They're actually supposed to be used on an ongoing basis. Yeah. Let's see, I got a few other comments here. Let me see what else. 
the best reliability model. Now there's an interesting question and it's a way for us to frame goals, right? But also evaluate the feedback that we're getting. Let me see if I have something on that on the next slide. Yeah, we can do wonderful analysis. Let, let me tell a story. Um, we got a few minutes left. Years and years ago, an organization I, I knew about and heard about was suffering in the market, right? They were making workstations, they were getting hammered by Dell and IBM, and they just weren't moving forward. So the technical sales manager or marketing manager, I think is his title, created a very simple series system model. I had a motherboard, hard drives, power supply, you know, uh, just the major subsystems. And then just put random guesses. I mean, just flat out guesses of what the breakdown of the overall reliability goal should be, which was a, apparent in the organization, but they didn't have even a basic series system model. And just kind of a, a sign, well, the keyboards don't have a lot of problems, so we'll give them 99.9% .9 over two years. And the hard drives, and power supplies, they're pretty bad, so we'll give them like 95%. And and then very quickly said, we're not even close to our goal, and did the math for it. Took it to a program team meeting, and the electrical engineers are there, mechanical engineers are there, the supply chain folks are there, and the program manager, she looked at this and goes, hmm, well, that's interesting. Looks like power supply, you're the weakest link, right? Because the math is pretty obvious. It doesn't matter how much better you make the uh, keyboards. If your power supply is below your goal, it's still going to be below the goal. And so she recognized that right away and looked at the power supply team and says, what are you going to do to improve reliability? Come back next week with a proposal and how much it's going to cost to improve reliability so that you're not the weakest link anymore. So they scurried away and went off and did that. So. This was a very simple series system model with just top of the head, back of the envelope guesses. And it caused a decision to be made to, that actually improved the product, right? Let's go figure out how to improve the weakest link. Now, part of that process was getting better data, right? The individual teams then went off and said, well, you know, the hard drive really is performing at this rate. And then they went and found the field data and the vendor data, and they asked better questions. And they were avoided being the weakest link for quite a while. The CPU worked with the vendors to get really detailed information about failure mechanisms and how the vibration and the mounting of this system was causing problems for them. And then they solved that and moved off of being the weakest link. And it was back to the power supply and so on. Even software was included in this set of discussions, but they ratcheted up the reliability by focusing on the weakest link each time. Now they had a series system model, which is pretty easy to understand. And so you didn't need a, a high zoot, sophisticated, uh, completely automated Monte Carlo, you know, to the 20th degree, all kinds of fancy software. This was all done on a simple spreadsheet with no, uh, uh, you know, it, it didn't use anything fancy at all. It was just multiplication and, and addition, essentially. But it was used to great effect to help the team focus on where to, where to look for the solutions. And, and so it just ratcheted up their process. Now, sometimes you've got a complex system. It's a highly available system with le various levels of redundancy and and repair times and all those other things, then a more sophisticated model makes sense. But sometimes just having a simple one actually solves the problem. Sometimes a complicated one where a simple one would do confuses the problem. So match that to what decisions need to be made, right? A, a good model will expose where the risks are and inform decision makers where to focus improving the information or taking a different path. And so those are both uh, bits and pieces to this. So I know I've got a couple other examples here, but let me see what the uh, suggestions are. And I'm not gonna go into the rest of my slides, but 
except for just briefly. Um, a single way to calculate reliability. Um, no, there's not. Um, I mean, the idea is that if I have just a guess as the reliability of something, that may be sufficient. Now, if it's a million dollar question and we've got the resources and skills to do a life data analysis and actually do an accelerated test or do the analysis with it, what we can do within our, our abilities and can move well beyond a guess to here's the scientific evidence that this is going to be 98% or better over two years, well, then let's do that. But if that expenditure of, say, a half million dollars to get that information, to run those tests, to do all those analysis and all the engineers involved with it, but it's only a $10 question, well, the guess was good enough. So it's any of the tools we select. Yeah, we could always do better. There's no doubt in my mind, we could always do better. It's one of my pet peeves with PhDs. They know how to do things better. Um, but the, the ones I don't like, and any of your PhDs online, please take this uh, not personally. The idea is just because you can do it better doesn't mean you should. And so there's, in the tool selection processes, what do you need to do to answer the question, to solve the problem, to understand the issues, and, and then inform others of that they can make better decisions. Now, I'll just mention a couple of these other areas here, um, is bad components, right? We have stuff from vendors, uh, we have individual components that are faulty, uh, we have, we discover bad batches material that somehow get into our production line or out to the field. And, and those are issues that require a good range of tools, including things like SPC and failure analysis and contracts with vendors that helps us solve these things, right? We need to ask the right questions of our vendors and suppliers and of the importance of the claims they're making, right? Is just because they say it's reliable, do they understand our use conditions, right? It's in spec, it should be good. Well. Okay, is the spec even appropriate is a good question to ask. Is it consistent? Uh, is it is it maintained very well? We have tight tolerances. Well, if you have a very sloppy process, tight is relative to how important your it is to your design. Um, all these other sources of variability are areas that we use SPC, failure analysis, uh, design of experiments, and so on in order to understand those sources of variability and reduce them, which indirectly then improves the reliability of our, our products. Another whole category is our assembly processes and the way we manufacture stuff. Again, there's variability and tolerancing and feedback. Here, tolerancing is back to the design for assembly, right? If I want a tenth of a mil tolerance, plus or minus on this particular dimension, but we're cutting it with a chainsaw, I'm probably not gonna get within a tenth of a mil every time. That's just not gonna happen. So what's our capability? What is, as we monitor key elements of our manufacturing processes or assembly processes, Let's gather some of that information and make it part of a design guideline that if we're gonna use this milling process or we're gonna use this forming process or we're gonna use this particular assembly process, here's what we can and can't do. Here's our capability. And that allows us then to frame tolerances that fit within our processes. Uh, or you could be Apple and just create new tech, new processes in order to achieve your tolerances. It's your choice. So. Another whole group of uh, issues and tools, considerations for us to, to put this together. So let me close out right up against the end of the hour here, and then I'll, I'll turn my attention to, I see a couple more comments. What we do in reliability is not follow a formula. We have to think, right? What are the problems? What are the questions coming up? What are What needs to be known by when, right? Now we, have a bevy of tools that allow us to do field data analysis, failure analysis, modeling, 
uh, evaluations and testing and optimization and process control and so on and on and on. We can do all kinds of cool stuff. But they have to influence the decision. They have to be fed to or used by somebody that actually needs that information to get the information together so they can make the, I'm using air quotes here again, right decision, right? Do we launch or not? Is it reliable? If it's below 70% reliable over two years, we're not going to launch. How well do we know that? If we have just uh, shrug our shoulders and go, well, we think it's good. It's not really helping that decision maker. Let's give them the evidence, right? Wh what can we do? What's, what's available for us to do? How can we uh, use the tools and skills and capabilities that we have available? What do we need to learn? What are the gaps that we have? And let's go deliver it. Right. Let's give them something that they actually can use that adds value to the discussion and to the decisions. And so that's my presentation today. I see a couple of comments in here. Yeah, gap analysis is you know part and parcel to this whole process. You know, it's what's the problem, and then it's given that set of constraints and what we know and don't know. Well, that immediately forms that gap analysis. Do I need a simple model or a complex model to solve this one, for example? Good, good observation. It's my request that a model is developed in such a way that on paper problem solution could be discovered. You know, and there's a lot of argument to that, uh, Radeep, that a lot of modeling is actually informative. Um, it's the problem I have is that too much of our modeling is done using really bad information like Mill Handbook 217 type modeling, which the structure of the model itself and the assumptions it makes just pretty much guarantee that it's not going to be that terribly useful in order to estimate and give feedback against your goal. Whereas if we do a simple reliability block diagram and at, populate that with the appropriate distributions for the dominant failure mechanisms, we're going to be light years ahead of a model that actually can inform us is where the weakest links are. What are the early the risks for early life failures and what are the likely areas for risks for wear out failures that are premature. We can use that to actually inform ourselves to make decisions. If the if the model doesn't really help us make decisions, it it's it's just a piece of paper at that point. It's who cares? Let's see. How do we perform gap analysis? Well, it's, gap analysis to me is the tension between um, where we want to be and where we are. What do we know or and don't know versus what we need to know? So if somebody like my boss years and years ago came in and said, will this last for 20 years? I don't know. Well, there's a gap. The tool selected to fill that gap was an accelerated life test. We had six months. And so I had to design a test that would get us reasonable results within six months. And so the gap analysis was, here's the problem, here's the constraints, what do we need to know? And, and then use the tools to fill that in. But gap analysis can be used in all kinds of fields. It's basically that tension between you know, what you want versus what you have. So for me, the gap analysis, well, how do I do nonlinear linear regression? Right? How do I go about doing that? So I, I knew about linear regression, but I knew this problem was going to be nonlinear because of the nature of the formulas we were using to do the accelerations, uh, uh, translation from accelerated conditions to uh, use conditions. And so I hit the books. I talked to people that knew how to do it and got the tools that allowed us to do it. And so the gap analysis is an ongoing series of questions. So what do we know and what we what don't we know? And then how do we fill the gap analysis then yields what a, a not a roadmap, but it gives you a framing of the problem of what do you need to know? What do you need to change? What do you need to get in order to move forward? Not sure if that's a, a complete answer to that question. Um, all right. So we're a few minutes over. I don't see any more um, questions. So we'll wrap it up here. And oh, I actually pulled up next week is uh, Adam Barrett's doing survivorship bias principle. 
and he's at uh, Tuesday at nine o'clock uh, uh, U.S. Pacific time. And then the week after that is uh, Chris Jackson's coming back and he's gonna talk about Bayesian analysis and kind of what it is and why we use it and when to use it and all that kind of stuff. And as you may recall, Chris does beautiful graphics and slides and animations and stuff in his presentation. Plus he's wicked smart. So hopefully you can make it for that. That's uh, the fourth Tuesday of the month, but he starts at 8 a.m. Uh, US Pacific time. So uh, Adam and I and others, like the nine o'clock hour and my Chris has lobbied for a little bit earlier, which is fine. And so I just want to highlight the couple of upcoming topics and that difference in time. So with that, I appreciate your time. Uh, thanks, Paul. You're welcome. And we'll see you. Let's see. Do I have my next one up here? No, I don't. So I'm not sure what I'm talking about next month. But hope to see you next week and next month. And if you have any questions, just let us know here at Ascendo Reliability. It may just turn into a podcast or an article, or we might already have it, and we can send you a pretty quick answer. So with that, have a great rest of the day Tuesday for you, and uh, we'll see you online shortly.